Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the Conversation at Colloquium. Today, I am honored to welcome back Keith Black to the podcast. If you haven't already listened to my first episode with Keith, it's one of our best performing ones. That's why he has the dubious honor of being a repeat guest for us. It's episode 45. It's mostly focused on crypto and digital assets, which we're going to get into again today. But for those who are not familiar, Keith Black has over 30 years of financial market experience, serving over half the time as an academic and half as a trader and consultant to institutional investors. He currently serves as the Managing Director of Content Strategy for the CAIA Association. Prior experience includes commodities, derivatives trading, stock options research, CBOE floor trading, and building quantitative stock selection models for mutual funds and hedge funds. Keith is one of the smartest people I know that can actually speak in layman's terms about these things, so I'm excited to have him on. And I think today the focus is going to be on SPACs and crypto. So Keith, maybe let, let's start on the on the on the SPAC side of things. You know, this is Q1 2022. I don't want to get too granular because this is evergreen content, but we're witnessing kind of the explosion or the destruction of a lot of value within these SPAC structures in many ways. I saw an article the other day about how many of them have not been able to find attractive acquisition opportunities. So they may have to fold and give the money back and kind of destructure, which I'm curious to see how that's going to go about. But could you provide maybe just kind of broad commentary on when SPACs became de rigueur in the market and and what's happening today and what you think is going to happen moving forward for them? So a little bit of background, uh, SPACs are special purpose acquisition companies, and they do an IPO uh, to raise money 
to make an acquisition of an unnamed company. So when you give your money to a SPAC, hopefully they would give you a, a little bit of a head start and say, we want to make an acquisition in, in fintech or healthcare or, or real estate and so on. But sometimes you just write that, that blank check to the sponsor of the SPAC and trust them to go out and find an acquisition target. So the idea is they'll do an IPO typically for $10 a share, and they will have up to two to three years to go out and find an acquisition target. So when we go public, we're going public with this, this SPAC shell corporation. It, it simply has the, the $10 a share in, in cash, and they're going to go out and look for a merger partner. And as you said, there is a tremendous explosion of SPACs going public in 2019 and 2020, and, and maybe the, the beginning part of, of 2021. And so there's a, a record number of SPACs out in the market looking for, for targets. And it's actually not necessarily a bad thing if they don't find the target, because as you said, they just give the money back. So we did an IPO for, for $10 a share, and then two or three later, two or three years later, you get $10 a share back if the deal doesn't happen. So there's worse things that, that happen rather than having three years of, of dead money. So my question is, SPACs were around, I think, in the 90s, right? Or there was a, a previous trend where they became fairly popular and it ended in tears. Why now? Why during COVID did they all of a sudden become so popular again? I, I think uh, there's been a, a crowd psychology out in the market, whether it's cryptos or, uh, you know, trading on Robinhood or these these meme stocks from from Reddit. You know, maybe maybe there's kind of a, a, a speculative nature to these SPACs. And when the, the market goes into speculative mode, maybe SPACs are more attractive because when you do an IPO of, of an operating company, there's lots of disclosures that are involved. You have to give historical financials and all these forward-looking uh, statements and you have your lawyers and accountants write this this hundred page document that says here's all the things that can go wrong. And so, uh, doing an IPO of an operating company, it's a fairly steep endeavor. Now, what's interesting is when the SPAC finds a, a merger partner or an acquisition target, none of that disclosure is required because it's it's regulated under the merger laws rather than regulated under the IPO laws. And and so an IPO can't say, oh, we're going to be this fantastic company five years forward. That's against the law in IPOs. But in mergers, they're, they're allowed to give these three years of forward-looking statements. And so especially in some of these you know, battery technologies and electric cars and space companies, there's zero revenue companies that are going public and they're saying, oh, we're going to be a five or $10 billion company within three years, which of course is fast than, than Google grew, which was one of the best companies ever. And so we, we got caught up in these forward-looking statements and believing that, that these companies did deserve to go public because the, the retail investors had this very uh, speculative love of, of stocks and, and electric vehicles and, and space technology. And how does this all interplay with this, this trend we've seen for a while now of private companies staying private for longer at higher valuations? And just the, the, the lowering of the number of public companies in general that the quote-unquote retail investor can get access to on the stock market. So we're seeing that there's, there's maybe half as many public companies today as there, as there was around the year 2000. And that's not because public companies did poorly. You know, we're at record highs in, in market cap and record highs in 
you know, S&P 500 and so on. And so the, the shrinking of the public companies, a lot of this has to do with merger and acquisition activity. And so we're looking at, you know, somebody like Microsoft buying Activision, that's two public companies getting together. They'll eventually collapse into one public company if they get over the, the antitrust issues and the, the shareholder vote and all of that. But the market cap is going to be the same or, or bigger between the two going forward. And so it's not necessarily the, the number of public companies we're concerned with, because uh, you could say there's there's a large larger number of companies public today than there has been in the past. They're just simply combined into these larger and and larger companies. So, but there is um, an important trend of private companies staying private longer, and and we see that that the private equity and venture capital asset class it's it's over five trillion dollars, and institutional investors are looking to put more and more money into the space. And so, if you look back into um, you know. 20, 30 years ago, companies went public kind of because they had to. They got to a, a specific part of their of their growth cycle, specific part of their need for capital. They couldn't get it from um, private equity, venture capital, or, or banks at that point. So once you became a certain size and, and had uh, certain cash needs, you kind of had to go public. But because of the size of, of private equity today, they, they facilitate these companies staying private longer. That's interesting. So you think previously, in and we're going to get into crypto versus the dot-com boom and some valuation, but we can touch on it here. You, you think previously some of these firms that went IPO, maybe particularly in the tech space, weren't ready, but they just didn't have anywhere to go within that private capital ecosystem? Well, the the tech space is, is a kind of a different story, and we'll talk about the dot-coms in a little while. But in you know, 97, 98, 99, you know, there's some parallels to, to today's market, right? So you could say that, you know, the electric vehicle and, and space SPACs are just as speculative as the, you know, dot-coms of the, of the late 90s. And, you know, why did you go public? Well, because we can, right? There was a, a speculative nature in the market and retail investors wanted to buy these things. Everybody wants to, to get rich overnight and not be left behind. And so they're, they're kind of sucked into this speculative mania of a, of a dot-com stock or of a electric vehicle SPAC. And it's kind of the same investor behavior all over again. So, so I guess going back to my previous question, the, the SPAC phenomenon, I understand the points you're making about a traditional IPO, but isn't there, isn't there a reason and a rationale behind that underwriting process and a reason and a rationale behind the disclosures and having a, a bunch of investment banking analysts run through everything and, you know, do the sensitivity analysis. I mean, isn't there, isn't there a protection there for the quote unquote retail investor? There, there is. And, and so we, we'd expect that on average companies going public through the IPO process today would be of higher quality than the companies going public through the SPAC process. And maybe, maybe companies are opting for a, for a SPAC because they don't, don't have the, the option of going to an IPO given where their their disclosures and, and growth trajectories are now. And so some people say that that SPACs are for companies that should do IPOs three years from now. Oh, I see. So it's it's a little bit of a, of a bridge or a, a, a non-traditional way to create liquidity. And, and isn't that kind of what this is all about on some level is creating liquidity for some of these early investors in these companies that seemingly stayed private forever? I mean, there are a number of them that, that went out during COVID that I think had been private for 20 plus years. At some point, on, especially for non-institutional investors, there has to be a liquidity event, right? Right. So uh, once a company becomes a, a certain size, it, it needs to be sold. 
Uh, and so you could sell that through through an IPO. You could sell that through a, a SPAC. You could sell that through a, a direct listing or through a, a strategic merger. And so companies that that do have some value, maybe a family business, they would be looking to to sell to a larger company in the in the same line of business in order to to get that liquidity. Because uh, you you can't sell uh, as a general rule uh, a small portion of a private company, right? If you want to sell, you know, 10% for, you know, taxes or estate planning purposes, uh, it's, it's kind of the same process as selling, you know, 30% or hundred percent that, that the liquidity really, it really isn't there. And depending on where you are in your, in your life cycle and, and, you know, whether your family wants to take over the business, those are all considerations in, in how you approach your liquidity event. Are you surprised that there haven't been more direct listings after Spotify, you know, famously did theirs? Yeah, Spotify and, and Coinbase. So the direct listings work best for companies like Spotify and Coinbase. You say Spotify, you say Coinbase, everybody knows what they are. And uh, they have that brand name recognition, so they don't need the investment bankers to, to drum up that business. But there's a key difference between the direct listing and the IPO. They still have the same disclosure requirements, but in a direct listing, you're not raising any new capital. So when when Spotify went public, when Coinbase went public, they did so without selling any new shares. So the company didn't raise any new capital in that process. They simply took the shares that were owned by the employees and the firm and their private equity partners. They simply listed those shares in the in the public market and provided liquidity for people who already owned it. But they didn't bring any new uh, investors into the process the way a uh, an IPO would. What are your thoughts on pre-IPO secondary deals? for retail investors? So under the Investment Company Act of of 1940, which regulates mutual funds, we see that they can invest up to 15% in private companies. And so there's a a number of large mutual fund companies that will include those uh, those unicorns, those pre-IPO tech companies in their publicly traded mutual funds at weights of up to 15% of the fund. So they might put, you know, a 1% position in, you know, 10 different unicorns to kind of accelerate the growth of their, uh, of their tech fund. Now, there are, uh, there are ways for employees of pre-IPO companies to, to get liquidity. And so once you get to that, you know, $500 million, billion dollar, uh, pre-IPO market cap, that unicorn level, there is liquidity available for employees without going public because people in that that private equity venture capital space are anxious to to get shares uh, before that IPO event. And do you think some of these crowdfunding websites that offer you know individuals access to those type of, of funding rounds, do you think valuations are 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 fairly done in that space? I mean that that's the worry, right? Is is you know you're it's pre IPO. These are fast growing, usually tech companies. And, you know, you're buying into a founder shares or early shares. There's going to be a lockup associated with it. I know some people that did the Robinhood deal and day one, they were, you know, popping champagne. By the time the the 12 month lockup is going to run out, they might be drowning their sorrows. Do you have any editorial commentary there? Yeah. So there's there's not necessarily a rule that private companies are more more speculative or 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 less risky than than public companies, right? Every every company is is different, but yeah, historically, what we've seen is that that private companies trade at slightly lower valuations than than public companies, right? There's a value to that liquidity, or you might need to take uh, a discount on on your sale by selling the the private stock. But as uh, as 
these private shares become more and more liquid, uh, we might see a convergence in those in those valuations. So it depends on whether the the employees are more anxious to sell or whether the the mutual funds and the and the the retail investors are um, more interested in buying. Now we have to define what retail investor is, right? Because the SEC has a rule of accredited investor, which has um, an income of of two or three hundred thousand dollars or a net worth of a million dollars outside of your residence. And once you're an accredited investor, that opens up the ability to buy unregistered securities and hedge funds and private equity. But if you don't have that accredited investor status, it's it's a lot more difficult to, to buy into those private. So not every retail investor has access to those uh, those pre-public deals. So let's get into that. There's some speculation that the SEC may modify the definition. They did it, I guess, six months ago, maybe to allow certain professional designations to not have to have the income or wealth requirements. Do you have a stance on whether it should be changed at all? And if should, should it be a higher barrier or a lower barrier? Well, there's currently about 13 million households in the U.S. that that fit that accredited investor definition, and of course, they they hold the majority of the wealth in the in the U.S. And so, uh, there's certainly a lot of people who are already qualified. And the the rules that were changed is bringing typically financial market professionals into the mix. And so, if you work in a private equity company and you don't make that that two hundred thousand dollars, they'd still allow you to you know buy into your own deal, something like that. And so, it's not like we're we're opening up the doors to to anyone who wants to come in. The rules that that just changed had you know significant requirements in terms of a financial education or registration. So you need to be say a, a FINRA registered broker with some training in order to access these these deals. I'm gonna I'm gonna push you a little bit here. Do you have a stance or an opinion? I mean, you just said it yourself, right? 13.1, I think it's 13.1 million accredited investor households in America. They have the vast majority of the wealth today. Do you think there should be more access for people that don't qualify as an accredited investor to these alternatives and private equity as a means to bridge this inequality gap in America today? There's a there's a lot of risks, right? And and we've seen kind of the the behavior of retail investors with this whole uh, kind of Robin Hood story and and the, the crypto story and so on. And so one one of the things that that we see in in private equity is if you go into a standard private equity or venture capital fund, you're locked in to for for ten years. And retail investors tend to have a, a, a much shorter time horizon. And and unfortunately, what we see is that you know the the compounded value of of any mutual fund just in its NAV is typically much higher than the returns that the investors in that fund earned, right? So behaviorally, what we see is that the people like buying in after um, a significant price increase, and they often sell after a, a price decline. And so retail investors don't necessarily have the, the best track record. And there, there are some additional risk factors when you go into the, into the private markets. A lot of speculation as we record this that Robinhood may be acquired. They're having a, a, a hard time right now. So it's interesting that you bring that up. And then the meme stock phenomenon also has seemed to, to, to really been tempered recently, not nearly as big as it was. So before we, we shift over to, to crypto, because I want to get into that, I want to close the chapter on SPACs. With the benefit of hindsight, now that we're in 2022, and I'm not asking you to look forward, but over the last two or three years during this kind of phase of, of the SPAC rebirth, do you think wealth has been created or destroyed on balance? 
we, we'd have to look at all of the at all of the deals, but a lot of the the specs are trading below that 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 ten dollars. But but we need to we need to kind of separate out. We call them specs when they're special purpose acquisition corporations. When they're these blank check companies, right? So it's always the the only specs there are are the pre mergers, right? And once it's called you know DraftKings or Virgin Galactic, that's a publicly traded stock. Right, it's not a spec. You you might be able to call it a post spec or a company that came came public through the spec process. But at the end of the day, they're public companies that that are subject to all of the disclosures and and SEC requirements. So there are uh, a number of companies that have destroyed value, but there are uh, a lot of companies that are trading above their above their spec price as well. And what we see in the academic literature is that we could actually predict which SPACs will do uh, better or worse depending on on who's running the SPAC. And so if you if you define the SPAC very tightly and you say, I want to do an acquisition in fintech or I want to do an acquisition in biotech, and you've actually been an entrepreneur or a CEO in uh, fintech or biotech, that's a very positive way to, to do things. But if somebody says, oh, I'm an asset manager and I'm going to invest in any industry I want, they might not necessarily be the, the best manager of that company. So the closer you are to that industry and the, the more you have operating experience, the more uh, positive that, that might be. And of course, you want to look at the, the speculative nature of the company as well. So if it's a zero revenue company that's predicting you know, $5 billion within three years, that's inherently speculative and there, there's not much of a, of a track record there. And so you know, anytime you invest in a, in a pre-revenue company, you know, it could turn out well and it could not. I think that's fair. The clarification there, and I should have posed it more artfully, but there are a lot of these post-back transactions, the IPOs, post-IPOs, the performance has been poor on the whole. I mean, there are some outliers there, but generally speaking, they have underperformed the initial, um, at least from a pricing standpoint. Do you think SPACs will continue to be a way for companies to go public moving forward? Or is this phase largely over and we're going to go back to more traditional IPO underwriting? Well, SPACs will always be with us until they until they change the rules. And, and there are some talented operators. We're, we're seeing some positive signs in the way that that SPACs are are structured, and so there's a, there's a whole arbitrage mechanism in SPACs. So not only can you buy it for ten dollars and then send the money back and get your your ten dollars back, but you also have the ability to uh, earn warrants or long term call options on the on the stock in its post SPAC state. And if uh, you get one warrant for every ten dollars you put in. That's pretty generous to the to the investors and could could proceed a lot of dilution. But what we're seeing is um, some SPACs are saying, okay, we're not going to give you one warrant for every one share of stock. We're going to give you one warrant for every three shares of stock. And if you ask for your ten dollars back, you get you don't get to keep the warrants. And so there are ways that that we can protect the SPAC shareholders from uh, some of those those dilution factors. But again, we'd want to make sure that we're invested in uh, in an operator in that industry. Because if we look at pure financial deals, pure asset managers who come into the space, those uh, substantially underperformed the IPO market over the last two years. So let's pivot to, to digital assets and crypto in particular. As we record this Q1 2022, the crypto market as a generalization has been absolutely hammered for the last two, three months. A lot of individuals retail investors, you know, the Robinhood crowd, as well as some very sophisticated private equity institutional groups have plowed into the space. 
as you're looking through the, the lens of, of your firm, how are you looking at the crypto investment as an asset class? Uh, so at Chi Association and at FTP Institute, uh, we give exams on alternative investments and then artificial intelligence and machine learning in the investment space. And in both programs, we are um, looking at blockchain and crypto and, and decentralized finance. But we're in the education business, not in the in the investment business or the investment recommendation business. Uh, so I don't have a compliance department. I can kind of speak freely on my on my own views. And so I, I wrote a, an article: How are cryptos like dot coms? And so the idea goes in. The late 90s, you had all of these uh, very speculative stocks, you know, maybe they'd be SPACs today. And you, you know, you, you say, we have a website or we changed our name to .com and, and the stock price goes up 20%. And uh, a lot of money poured into that space and there were, there were tremendous returns. And you could have made, you know, six times your money in venture capital in just five years if you were in that 1994 vintage, say. So it was a, a tremendously lucrative time. And we've seen the same thing with crypto. We've... Uh, gone from uh, zero to a trillion dollars. And then in 2020, 21, we went from one trillion to three trillion in a pretty short time. And now we've consolidated back to around that, that $2 trillion level. And so we saw you know, a substantial increase in the dot-coms in the late 90s, and then a substantial increase in, in cryptos in, uh, in 2021. And you, you see some of the, the same behavior that, you know, as, as prices are going up, people, people come in. But what happened to the dot-coms in 2000, right? We saw the NASDAQ down by more than two-thirds, lost $1.5 trillion of value in nine months, and the majority of those dot-coms went to zero. And I'm here to tell you that of the 11,000 cryptos today, the majority of them are going to zero. But what happened 20 years post-dot-com? We've got Amazon and Netflix and Google and Priceline and Broadcom and eBay, right? $4 trillion worth of companies. So the market cap of the, of the internet leaders today is substantially greater than, than the drawdown in dot-coms in 1999, 1999 and 2000. And so we're going to see the same kind of value destruction in these marginal cryptos. You know, uh, the vast majority of these 11,000 are going to zero, but some of the biggest companies in the world 20 years forward are cryptos today. Can we tease that out a little bit more, that analogy you're using between digital and, and venture capital? Is, is that the risk profile that people should be thinking about when they invest into the crypto space? Uh, you, could, you could simply say that uh, crypto is publicly traded venture capital. And, you know, in the venture capital model, the, you're going to lose money on the majority of the investments. But the reason you do it is because hopefully, uh, you know, five or 10 or 20 percent of your investments will make, you know, 10x or more. Right. And that's the that's the risk profile. That was the risk profile of, you know, dot coms. And that's the risk profile of cryptos as well. And, and it's not, you know, immediately apparent, uh, you know, which ones are going to succeed in the long run. But you can do some due diligence and um, mitigate the risk of the ones that are that are obviously worth or zero. And you know, I, I'd like to make the analogy that uh, you know Doge and Shibu Inu are exactly the same as Pets.com. And uh, you know, there's no use case for Doge. There's no use case for for Shibu Inu. There's no there's no scarcity. Uh, they're they're not real companies. They're they're just pure speculation. You know, they come from from memes. Uh, people who created them said they're a joke. You know, but they're they're trading as if they're worth tens of billions of dollars today, and that value is not going to be there in the, in the long run. 
Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. So I don't want to date you, but you you talked about the dot-com crash in the 90s and the fact pattern, the way it laid out then. What was ultimately the catalyst for the washout there? So the the story went uh, that these dot-coms were going to take uh, 100% share of uh, brick-and-mortar retail within five years. And I remember like it was, it was yesterday in, in March of 2000, I was living in Chicago, go outside in the snow, and I, I get my Barons off the front porch. And you, you look at the front cover of, of Barons in, in March of 2000, and it has a, an image of money on fire uh, on, the, on the cover. And so you, you read the, the cover story, and the, the, the speculation was, in the long run, all of these dot-coms are going to take over the world. Right. And so you, you open it up and there's a table of, of 200 publicly traded dot coms and they're sorted by their burn rate. Right. So they've, they've taken this, this venture capital money or they've taken this IPO money. They've raised a hundred million dollars. And then when you, when you read these tables, it says if you raised a hundred million dollars and you're losing 25 million a quarter, you're out of business in, in, in a year if you don't raise new capital. And so what people were projecting is in the long run, Every one of these is going to take huge market share from, you know, the, the retail crowd. And but what this Barron's article said is in the long run, most of these aren't going to survive because they're, they're losing so much money that they're going to run out of capital. So do you think what we've seen play out Q4, Q1 in the crypto space is at the beginning of this recalibration of this reset or is it a bump in the road? I don't I don't want to paint all crypto with the same brush. Right. And so what I'd like to say is crypto's just like a stock market, right? Except it's it's more like publicly traded venture capital than publicly traded things that have been through an IPO process that that we talked about. And so when when crypto's like a like a stock market, you're gonna have your big caps and your small caps and your growth and your value, and you're gonna have your your total fraud, right? And uh there's there's a mixture of of all of them. And but when we go back to that that dot com analogy, we've got Amazon and Priceline and Broadcom and eBay as some of the biggest winners of the dot com. And if you think about it, they're all in completely different businesses, right? That that Priceline is different than eBay is different than Amazon is different than Broadcom. And so what we need to do to break down the, the cryptos is figure out what industry is each of these in? What is the use case for this coin? Is it in DeFi where there's borrowing and lending? Is it in DeFi where there's kind of futures and options and, and synthetic uh, stocks? Is it um, you know something like like Ethereum that's that's uh, facilitating global commerce through through smart contracts? Is it Bitcoin that's a store of value? So you want to look at what each of these use cases are, and there's some interesting things even in NFT and gaming and, and metaverse because there's a lot of users there who are willing to spend money on these on these virtual assets. But what what you need to do is figure out what are the industries in crypto. Uh, and then what are they um, competing against in the real world? And so if you're looking at, say, you know, Aave or compound borrowing and lending, maybe you can compare it to, say, JP Morgan. JP Morgan has a business of this size. Uh, you know, this borrowing and lending business has a business of this size. And what we see is that, you know, Uniswap and SushiSwap and, and compound 
they, they have a billion dollars of, of revenue in the trailing 12 months. People uh, paying fees to, to borrow and lend money and, and swap one crypto for another. And when you see these companies, uh, these protocols having revenue in the hundreds of millions of dollars, and you can compare it to, say, New York Stock Exchange or, or JP Morgan, you start to say, maybe these are real companies. Maybe there's real value there. And, and something in that space might, might uh, have a, a true value in the long run. So let's get into that. I mean, like you mentioned before, a number of these stock market bubble companies ended up being market makers, right? Just huge market capitalizations, Amazon, et cetera. What's the right way to evaluate some of these definancing platforms and protocols and, and, and crypto assets today? Is there, is there a way that we can look at them and evaluate them and figure out, you know, how to invest into them? There, there's a, a lot of great sources of, of information. You could look at at CoinGecko, CoinMarketCap. You could look at uh, at Token Terminal, and they'll they'll give you these statistics. But what we really want to see is how many people are using it, right? The the number of addresses or the number of active users in the DeFi space. We want to see the total value locked. If people have invested five billion dollars in this in this platform, that's a good sign that there's a that there's a real business there. So you want to see. Uh, what's the revenue to the miners? What's the revenue to the stakers? What are the fees people are paying to participate in this in this protocol? What's the growth in the in the number of of users? But at the end of the day, the the protocols that that are going to be worth something in the long run, they have a real business use case. There's a there's a reason that people need to buy these, not just because it's there or because it's fun or because it made a lot of money last last quarter. So I mean, are there other other I don't want you to call us specific names necessarily, but from an industry perspective, you say utilization. If people aren't super familiar with this space, what are some some verticals or or industries or platforms that you can use as an example to demonstrate to people? Like Ethereum, for instance, right? There, there's a use case there. There's a blockchain technology underneath it that people can use for various other market machinations. Is that what you're talking about when you talk about utilization and a use case? That's right. And so uh, you could have... Uh... You could have uh, something like Bitcoin as your store of value. You compare that to gold, right? It, it's um, it's secure in the way it's mined. We know what the inflation rate is. Maybe there's some scarcity there. Uh, you've you've also got this layer one, right? And and so uh, Ethereum and Solana and, and Avalanche and and some of those protocols, uh, they are facilitating commerce through um, through smart contracts. And, uh, you know, Solana and Ethereum, they're kind of driving all of this NFT business. All this NFT business is actually settling to, uh, say, the, the Solana or the, the Ethereum blockchain. You've got this, this DeFi business of, uh, of borrowing and lending. And so why would you put money in a bank when you could earn, you know, 6 or 8% yield on a stable coin? Right. And so we could uh, say, OK, what's the what's the amount of money in, you know, CDs or um, in bank accounts and, and how much of that's going to move into this into the stablecoin business? You've got, um, you know, exchanges like, you know, Uniswap and SushiSwap and PancakeSwap. They're allowing you to, to trade one coin for another, just like you might on a, on a stock exchange. Uh, and then you you have uh, kind of synthetic businesses. You can buy insurance. Uh, so flight insurance on the on the blockchain makes great sense. You say I'm on this flight. I'm gonna I'm gonna pay my insurance premium. The smart contract can go out into a, into an oracle like Chainlink and say was that flight delayed or canceled? 
and it, and it automatically settles without any any claim or intervention process. So there there are these real use cases. So look at what the what the real world business is. Look at what the what the digital equivalent is, and most importantly, who's the leader in the space? Because at the end of the day, we're not going to have you know 400 decentralized exchanges. At the end of the day, it's going to be a relatively small number uh, of an oligopolistic practice. We talked about this on the first time you came on the show, but are there are there means by which people can access these digital currencies and these DeFi investments that, you know, don't require them to go directly into one particular coin or company? So there's um, decentralized exchanges are, are a little more complicated. So the way most people will probably start is to go into a centralized exchange. Uh, so Coinbase and Gemini and Kraken and Binance and FTX. Those are the way that people would invest, and each of those has you know twenty coins or a hundred coins you you can access. But other people might want to go into into the stock market because uh, crypto is not necessarily IRA friendly, right? You can't necessarily invest your four hundred one k in in cryptos without going to a kind of a specialized broker. But there are um, exchange traded funds that that trade Bitcoin futures. There's exchange traded funds that will that will trade. Uh, some of these companies that have invested in in Bitcoin in the exchanges, and so there are ways in the traditional stock market mutual fund uh, retirement universe, you could have a, a a direct or an indirect investment in the crypto space. So we're we're bumping up against time here, but can we talk about inflation? This is all over the news. It's all everybody's talking about CPI numbers came out recently, and there's different ways that you can kind of paint the picture, but the highest has been in as long as I've been paying attention, you know, 20 plus years is inflation. Do you think crypto assets will perform well in an inflationary environment or are there concerns and impacts that maybe people are thinking through when it comes to that? Oh, I thought you were going in a completely different direction with that question. So I'll answer your, I'll answer your question. <laughs> well, then, I want to hear the, uh, and then the question I wanted to hear. Yeah. Answer uh, the question you want to answer for a second. Yeah. yeah. So um, if, if you live in Venezuela or, or Zimbabwe, in, in you know Turkey, South Africa, Brazil, uh, you know you have a real inflation problem. It might be you know ten percent, fifty percent, you know nine hundred percent. And when inflation gets to those levels, crypto is absolutely positively an inflation head. You know even if you go into a into a stable coin, it's pegged at one dollar or one euro. That's certainly going to save you value relative to your inflationary home currency. And so. The, the more restrictive your comp- country is, the, the harder it is to have property rights, the harder it is to have sound money, the, the more inflation you have, the more it makes sense to be in, in crypto. Some countries don't even uh, you know, have sound banking systems, and uh, you know, crypto is, is absolutely a, a solution there. You know, do I think that the Bitcoin is going to respond point for point with U.S. CPI? You you can't really you can't really make that case. But in the long run, you know, Bitcoin is is scarce and the U.S. dollar is is not. You know, we we think that maybe uh, Bitcoin might might hold its value maybe a little better than than the U.S. dollar. Now, the question I I wanted you to ask is. <laughs> hey, is inflation transitory or permanent? And I'm going to I'm gonna go on and say that inflation is going to be much higher than people anticipate for a much longer period of time. And I think you have to start with defining what inflation is, right? So the consumer price index it, um, measures the price of uh, goods and services typically consumed by an American household. And it's maybe uh, 
35, 40% in housing, and then another kind of 15, 20% in food and energy. So that takes you to 50 to 60% of your inflation basket in food and energy and, and housing. And here, here's why I believe that, that inflation is, is going to last longer. So you're, you're in Nashville and, and you've seen what, what's happened to, to housing prices. And it's probably been, you know, 50 to 100% increase in housing prices over the last five to 10 years. And, and my bet is that, that rents on houses in Nashville haven't gone up nearly as much as the price of houses in Nashville. So if you're, if you own a house in, in Nashville that's gone from, you know, 300,000 to 600,000, and you know i don't know what the rents are maybe you know 1500 a month if you're if you're a, an owner of that of that property and you want to continue having it as a rental if the the price of the property has doubled and the the rent's only gone up you know 5 or 10% a year there's kind of um uh, an ability for that landlord to to increase rents at a at a pretty substantial pace in the in the years forward, and what we see is when somebody lives there, that price increase might be five or ten percent. But if somebody moves out and you replace them with a new renter, that price increase might be might be thirty percent for that next renter. So here's how inflation is going to be uh, more permanent. So the 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 homeowners, the the landlords say this house is way more valuable and I need to raise the rent, but I could only raise the rent so far in any given year. So now we say, okay, rents are going to increase by, you know, 50 or 100% over the next five to 10 years. Now, as the rents increase, the people living there find it less affordable. And so they'll say, oh, I can't work for X dollars an hour because my rent went up, right? I'm going to have to go ask for a raise in order to pay my rent, right? And then those people work at stores and restaurants and factories that have to pay, pay more in wages. And then they're going to raise the price on goods and services to afford the, the wages. And so if you just look at the, at the housing sector alone, I think there's enough pent up inflation to last us at, you know, at, at least 5% for, for at least two years. It's not going to be you know, 2% inflation in, in 23 like nothing ever happened. So next logical question, how does the Fed respond? They, they, they'll, they'll just raise rates as a way to try to tamp this down? Historically, that, that's been the case. You, you raise rates in, in order to tame inflation. You know, the wild card here is in the, is in the supply chain. Right. So how much of the, the price of goods and services is, has been affected by, by COVID restrictions and, you know, the, the lack of transportation and all of that. You know, but if you, if you look at, at just the housing market, you could, you could make a case for what that inflation is going to be. But if, uh, if the Fed uh, aggressively raises rates, we'd probably see, um, the, the real estate market really respond to that. And, and the, the tremendous house price increases we've had over the last five years, those are going to, going to slow or, or even reverse if the, if the Fed gets, you know, mortgage rates to say 5%. So maybe give us, you know, if possible, a two, three minute tutorial. Asset classes that have historically performed well during inflationary periods would be everything but stocks and bonds. Uh, as a, <laughs> okay, as a, as a general rule, and so you know, bonds uh, struggle the most against inflation because uh, they pay a fixed rate of interest, right? And if uh, you're used to earning three percent on a on a bond in a two percent market, that that looks really valuable because it's giving you an above market rate of interest. But if the the rate the market rate of interest goes up to five percent, uh, you're going to lose a lot of money on that bond because now it's paying three percent in a five percent market, and it's not nearly as attractive. So bonds are the the fixed rate bonds are the the worst thing to own during a time of, of inflation and rising rates. And, and stocks can struggle as, as well, uh, you know, because, um, you know, the, the dividends become less attractive. And if the stocks need to borrow money, that borrowed money comes at a higher rate. So what we see is that this real asset category 
tends to do the best during times of inflation. Real estate, farmland, timberland, infrastructure, commodities, these are, are where um, uh, you tend to see that increase in value during times of inflation. And you know, without dating the podcast, we are in, in Q121. We've seen a huge rollover in the, in the tech stocks, but the S&P isn't down nearly as much as the tech stocks because you've got this huge rotation into the, into the industrials and the, and the energy stocks that tend to do better during times of, of inflation. And it's 2022. Just to 22, yes. So I don't freak people out that are listening to the show that get confused that we entered into the 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 taco time machine and went back. Uh yes. one of Q one of twenty two. <laughs> but easy to do. Last question, and I'll let you go because we're bumping up against time. You talk to a lot of investors and you put out some really thoughtful content. There's the inflation issue. Are there what are the other one or two things? financial issues that are keeping people up at night right now? What's the, what's the feedback you're getting? What's the commentary that people just cannot get enough of from your firm? Everybody wants more private equity. They want more private debt and they want generally more in, in alternatives. And, and what, what's really interesting is the, is the, the public debt versus private debt and, and kind of how people are, are reaching for yield. They're, they're coming out of you know, publicly traded investment grade debt and they're going into this direct lending space. In the, the direct lending space, you're picking up some credit risk, but you're also moving into, into variable rate debt. And as a general rule, as interest rates rise, uh, variable rate debt is going to have less downside pressure than what we'd see in the, in the fixed rate bond space. Well, we'll call it on that. But Keith, I want to thank you as always. Just incredible content. You break things down, knowledgeable across any facet of financial industry expertise. So I want to thank you. Um, if people are interested in connecting with you, learning more about what, what, what Kai is doing and the content they're creating and the educational content that you all are producing, what's the best way for them to get in touch? So we're at CAIA.org and FDPinstitute.org. We have literally hundreds of blogs and webinars that are, that are posted. You can check out the archives and the, and the upcoming uh, episodes. Keith, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Robert, tell the people what's a pretendian. It's just what it sounds like, Angel. A pretend Indian. Someone who fakes being one of us. Someone who impersonates a native. We're talking about real scammers and con artists. There are pretendians teaching at universities, pretendians running governments, pretendians in Hollywood. On our new podcast, Pretendians, we'll tell you the incredible story of these jaw-dropping frauds. Who are they? Why do they do it? And how the heck do they keep getting away with it? Listen to Pretendians on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.